Now, um, we're going to read uh, just two verses at the very end of the 11th chapter, um, verses that quite often people just kind of skim over and, and, and read real quickly and move on to the 12th, but we're going to spend some time on them this morning. So, uh, hear now the very Word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter and the 53rd and 54th verses. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he may say. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Heavenly Father, I know that to many of us, these words just kind of look transitional, going from one chapter to the next. But I see something different here, and and I see something that you faced every day of your ministry when you were here. Uh, I, 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 I see some of the methodology of evil and what evil does when it is confronted with the truth. So I pray that uh, these words will hit home, that we will recognize that our enemy has not learned any new tricks over the 2,000 years since then, that he's doing the same thing today, that as a church and as Christians, it will behoove us to know the tactics of our enemy. And we will give you the glory as you reveal that to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to talk about four stratagems that evil uses to subvert, to battle, to try to unveil, if they can, the truth. Now, the truth that I'm talking about, as you probably realize, is the truth of God, the only truth, the absolute truth, the truth that is to be found in in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And evil will do anything that it can to try to subvert that truth, to keep it away from people. And so, therefore, we're going to look at those stratagems. Now, that might not be a word that you're completely familiar with this morning, a stratagem. Hang on just one second, please. How about you guys? Well, as long as you can see me. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody can see me, you know. Um, and, and, and <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about the difference between a strategy and a stratagem. And, and I'm going to talk about stratagems this morning. A strategy is a plan. It's a methodology. And it's what you do to accomplish an end. But a strategy quite often is a normal strategy. It's the way that you would normally go about it. A stratagem differs from that just a little bit because a stratagem will incorporate uh, intrigue or, or, or sneakiness or underhandedness. It's more of a surreptitious way to go about your strategy. Let me give you an example from the world of football, which I know a lot of you know that football is going on right now and in um, its uh, uh, its season. Well, believe it or not, I used to play football when I was in what we called junior high school then. We call it middle school now. But I, I don't know what happened to me. At that time, I was bigger in comparison to everybody else than I am now. I just kind of stopped and everybody else kept growing. But believe it or not, I was right in the middle of the line. I was a center on offense and a, and, and a linebacker on defense. But anyway, we had a pretty good team when we were that. And, and every coach will go into a game with a game plan. They'll go in with a strategy. And the strategy is usually based on what your strengths are. If you've got a great quarterback with a great arm and a bunch of fast backs, well, quite often you'll have a passing game. If you have strong line and strong backs but not a great arm, well, then you'll concentrate on the running game. And our team was the running game. It was We, we had a good line. We had a, some good backs that were agile and fast and strong. And so, therefore, when we had a game plan, a strategy, it would be just to drill right up the center of the field or off tackle or around the end, giving the balls to our backs and letting them do what they did well. 
But every now and then you came to a situation where the strategy wasn't enough, where you needed to do something a little out of the ordinary. You needed to do something that was kind of tricky, if you will. So we had these trick plays. That's what a stratagem is. For instance, if we were near the end of the game and we were only a few points behind and we had some, t- uh, some, some distance to try to get to, to the, to the goal line, well, instead of just plowing right up the middle, which is what our strength was, we would try a stratagem. Quarterback would take the hike and he'd immediately throw it off to the fullback, our big fullback, and he'd take off around the right end of the field. Now, of course, because he's such a good runner, all the defense has to go with him. And he'd run, and right before he got to the line of scrimmage, he'd stop and he would throw it back to the quarterback because the quarterback had just kind of meandered over to the left side of the field. No one's paying attention to him. But he made sure that instead of a forward pass, it was a lateral pass so that the quarterback could do with it as he wanted to. So the quarterback gets the ball, takes off like crazy down the left side of the field. Of course, all the defense, like a bunch of rabbits, have to scamper over to try to get him because he's heading for the goal line. As soon as he gets to the line of scrimmage, though, he stops and sets up for a pass because our wingback has just sort of ambled down the right side of the field. And he's standing all alone in the end zone. And so the quarterback just lobs the ball to him, and we win the game. We won several games like that. That's the difference between a strategy and a stratagem. A stratagem is something unusual, out of the ordinary. Now, Satan uses every resource, every faculty, every trick, every strategy, and every stratagem that he can possibly do to try and subvert the truth. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at four stratagems that are going to follow Jesus from this point on all the way to the cross because that is what his enemies want to happen. Now, as I said, it's been almost a month uh, since we've talked about Luke. And so I know that some of the nuances, the way that Luke has tied his gospel together, probably have gone a little bit cold in your mind. They certainly had, had in mind. And, and it was so sort of interwoven that it's impossible that I could actually do it justice. So let me kind of set the context in the broadest of terms. Right near the end of the 10th chapter, we're at the end of the 11th now. At the end of the 10th chapter, Dr. Luke started discussing sanctification through the means of grace. You may remember Mary sitting at Jesus' feet had the better portion than did Martha who was fussing around about doing the serving. And then later on at the beginning of the 11th chapter, Jesus begins to talk about how to pray and the value of prayer. And then halfway through the 11th chapter, a woman stands up and says, blessed are you and blessed is a mother who bore you. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So everything that we've been talking about has been sort of grounded in a discussion of sanctification. And we talked about the necessity of sanctification. Not only does it bring glory to God, not only does it make us more Christ-like, But when Jesus leaves this world after starting a war with his entry into the world, bringing the light of heaven into the darkness of this world, well, the church needs strong, disciplined, obedient, battle-ready saints willing to stand up against the wiles, the strategies, and the stratagems of the enemy. And so therefore sanctification is hugely important. And then that's how we got onto the entire conversation about spiritual warfare. And we talked about it almost in military fashion because Jesus left his home in heaven like a beam of light shining into this silent planet, completely engulfed in the darkness of the enemy that holds people in bondage. And he brought the light of truth into that. We called it the cosmic initiative. And he came with, uh, we, we talked about three objectives that he had. One, was to destroy evil. Jesus did not come to make an alliance with evil, to get along, to tolerate. He came to destroy the devil and his evil. Secondly, it was to search and save the lost. It was to find his elect. It was to find those that were to be his bride, cleanse them and take them back to heaven and introduce them to his father. All of those were, and of course the third one was to introduce the Father, the triune God. We didn't deal with that that much. But what we did talk about is that when that cosmic initiative, when the advent of Christ, when the light of his truth entered the darkness of this world, the darkness fought back. 
that evil wasn't going to take this lion down. And so de- uh, the devil started what we called diabolical countermeasures. You may remember that. Everything at his disposal, he began to use in order to try and subvert the truth. And so therefore this morning, we are going to see that continue as Luke simply tells us with the enemies of Christ, the human agents of evil are going to be doing actively to try to subvert the truth. And I realize that's a very broad brush about where we are, but I want to go ahead and get into these four stratagems so that we can see, first of all, the way I'm going to go about it is we're going to talk about how they relate to Jesus first, and then we're going to bring it into this world in which we live, and we're going to see that Satan hadn't learned any new tricks. He's still doing the exact same thing today. And then thirdly, and I think somewhat unexpectedly, I'm going to show you how this passage relates and those stratagems relate to the communion that we're going to take at the end of the message. So with that said, let's jump into the text starting in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. Now, if you've been following along in this study of Luke, you you may recognize that Luke has been very vague about changes in venue, changes in location. Really, the last time he designated a location was when Jesus entered the village where Mary and Martha live. Since then, we've seen some difference. We've seen some movement, but we really haven't gotten an indication that Jesus is on the road or on the move. Here, we see him leave. Now, where he's leaving from, it's important for us to know, he was invited to lunch by a Pharisee. There were some lawyers there. Jesus unleashed on them, as we're going to talk about in a moment, when they asked him a a, a weaponized question. Jesus unleashed on them, but now he leaves them. There's a separation almost symbolic in nature. But what's important about this is that those he left behind are going to carry with them the anger and the bitterness and the grudge that they are developing towards Jesus. Jesus may walk away, but these guys are not going to leave him alone from this point on until the cross. Now, the only thing I want to say about the scribes and Pharisees, you're very familiar with who the Pharisees were, one of the four great groups of Judaism, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And really, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the ones that normally were at each other's throat. Last time we talked about lawyers when Jesus pronounced those woes. And at that time, we talked about, well, lawyers were the ones who adjudicate the law. The scribes are the ones who write the law. The rabbis are the ones who taught the law. There's crossover between them. But the point that I want to make here is that these groups, quite often at each other's throats, were united in a common cause. And that common cause is to subvert the truth. It is to destroy Jesus. It is to stop his words because that is what is killing them and burning them as if it was acid poured upon their heads. And so in other words, that kind of sets the scene for these four um, stratagems that we're going to see. So let's take a look at this first one. The Pharisees began to press him hard. Now, I think I mentioned, I'm not sure I did. Let me make sure that I point this out. Um, Some of these words seem a little innocuous, don't they? They they, they don't seem like they're anything special. I mean, you read them, okay, so, so you pressed him hard. That's not new. Well, actually, we're going to go down into the Greek in each one of these stratagems, and we're going to find that they're much more colorful. (laughs) They're much more descriptive than they appear to be on the surface, and and that's the the case here. Uh, I mean, I I think that when the ESV says they were pressing hard, um, that kind of diminishes a little bit of the intensity. I want you to notice first before we go there that it starts out, Luke says, and they began to press him hard. Now we know that this is not the beginning of the persecution of Jesus. We know he goes all the way back to his ministry in Galilee, but there's a change. There's an intensity. There's a crescendo as we have in music where the music is louder and more pronounced and more forceful. There's an intensity that is growing and it's not going to stop until they have had their way, which they think is going to solve the problem. Here we are 2,000 years later, they got the same problem because they think by getting rid of Jesus, they can get rid of the truth, but they can't. Okay, but that's where they're headed with. It's going to strengthen. Now, there are 
the, the words that are used by the ESV to press hard, um, as I said earlier, I think they sort of diminish the intensity of this. New American Standard uses the phrase to be very hostile. The NIV uses the phrase to, phrase to avoid, oppose him fiercely. The King James Version says to urge him vehemently. Okay, it's a word that means fearfully and terribly and viciously and vehemently. In, in other words, Luke uses this word earlier when he was giving us the story about the centurion and his, and, and his servant. Remember that? And he said about that servant, he was suffering terribly. And so therefore, when we talk about the word actually is an adverb that modifies the verb press hard, it is a word that means something very intense, it, it, a, a vicious, angry, hostile, vehement kind of pressing. But oddly enough, the word press actually means to hold a grudge. That's what the underlying word means. It means to, to, to have it in for someone, to be so hateful, to be so angry that when they do something that it doesn't go away, you don't stop, you don't simply walk away from that, but rather you hold a grudge. In other words, you need to remember what has just happened when Jesus walks away. He gets invited to lunch by a Pharisee. Remember that? You know? How would you like it if your host turned around? Of course, they asked him a question. You know, how come you're not washing your hands like we do? But Jesus begins to give them a certain number of woes. Then he calls them legalists. He calls them majoring in minors. He refers to them as hypocrites. He calls them fools to their face. He says that they are like unmarked graves that defile anyone who comes in contact with them. To the lawyers, he says, you, you're creating heavy burdens and you give yourself loopholes so you don't have to put up with it. He even went so far as to say that the guilt of all the blood of every innocent prophet who has ever been killed was upon their heads. And then he leaves. But what he leaves behind are some people who are holding grudges against him. People who have a desire for his ill will. They have malevolence towards him. And so in other words, they plot and they plan and they create stratagems so that they can stop him, to thwart him, to subvert the truth, to silence the words that he is saying. Um, the second one of these stratagems going on, he says that they provoke him to speak about many things. Now, the word provoke is not a bad translation, but it's another one of the proofs that it's very difficult sometimes to translate a word from the Greek into a single word in English. One word just doesn't capture what the actual Greek word means. The ESV says provoke. Well, that gives you the idea of goading or prompting or setting someone up so that they say something. The New American Standard is a little bit more literal. It says question him closely. The idea of questioning is here a part of what that mean, that word says. The NIV paraphrases by saying he was besieged by their questions on many different subjects. Now, here's the point. They're asking Jesus questions, but they are not questions designed to translate knowledge or wisdom. These are weaponized questions. These are questions that have an alternative agenda. They are designed to thwart the truth, not to find the truth, but to subvert the truth. And so they begin to ask Jesus questions that um, um, will uh, uh, eventually uh, lead to uh, a malicious intent that they have for him. Now, in a Christian context, we don't like to provoke, or at least we're not supposed to provoke, okay? We're supposed to, to seek unity with each other. When there's a problem that occurs within people or within the church, all of church discipline is directed toward restitution, to restoration, to bring someone back to 
the truth. But that's not the way it is with evil. Evil loves to provoke. Evil loves to divide. Evil loves to separate people out so they're at odds with each other. And so therefore, that's what they're doing with Jesus. They're, 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 they're provoking him. We know that John tells us about the devil, about our enemy, that he doesn't create things. He doesn't make things. He, he destroys. Remember what he said in John 10? That the thief has come to do what? To steal to kill and to destroy. All he does is tear down. All he does is make things uh, 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 separate from what they are. And in fact, later on in John, Jesus talking to these same people said this about them. He says, you are not following the, the Father in heaven. This is not what we do. You are actually following the will of your Father the devil, talk about uh, people holding a grudge. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what we need to recognize is Jesus is now attacked by questions. He's surrounded by questions. He is besieged by questions, but none of those questions are actually asking him to tell about the truth. Each one of them is designed by the agents of evil to mask, to thwart, to subvert the truth. And that is, we are going to see is something that the devil still does today. The third of these stratagems, they provoke, well, by the way, Before we leave that one, notice what they're provoking him to do. The words are what they fear the most. The words are what Jesus is bringing because the words are the words of truth. And even though those words burn them like hot coals, they want those words to be expressed so that they can end up hating Jesus and have a reason to hate him. You've heard the phrase that there are people we love to hate, right? Hollywood surely has gotten that message. They, they, they create these villains that, you know, we'll watch that show or we'll watch that movie, not because we like the person, but because we love to hate them, you know? And, and, and there's a desire that those who really hate somebody, they want some kind of a, of, of a reason, of a justification for hating. So even though the words of Jesus were like hot coals on their heads, they're still willing to provoke him so that he would say those words so that they can be justified in their hatred for him and the stratagems that they are planning against him. The third stratagem. Down in verse 54, they were lying in wait to catch him. Now, that's not a bad translation, but the word that is used here in the Greek means to conceal oneself in a suitable position for a surprise attack. In other words, an ambush. But not an honest ambush, if there is such a thing as an honest ambush. Not a straightforward ambush. An ambush that uses intrigue, that uses trickery, that uses subterfuge. A surreptitious uh, kind of, 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 of an ambush. One that cloaks itself in friendship or, or something that is good so that they can perpetrate that evil. Probably one of the greatest examples of this comes from Greek mythology. You know, the story out of Homer's Odyssey of the Trojan horse. Remember that? That the, the, the Greek armies were butting their heads against the walls of Troy. And the walls were apparently so strong that they were getting nowhere. And so finally, they introduced, rather than a strategy, a stratagem. People of Troy woke up one morning. They looked out on the battlefield and all the Greeks are gone. And all their boats are gone. There's no one there. The only thing that is there is this big, giant statue of a horse. And they figured, well, the gods must have given it to us, or the Greeks must have left it as a tribute to our victory over them. So what did they do? They celebrated. They brought the horse inside those walls, right inside the city, not knowing that in the belly of that horse, a contingent of Greek soldiers was waiting for them to go to sleep. And as soon as they went to sleep, they got out, they opened the gates, and in came the Greek army and destroyed the entire city. That's 
a, 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 a stratagem. That, in fact, that is the one that gave me the entire idea. That is an ambush that is surreptitiously carried out. It is underhanded. It's a dirty trick. It's downright sneaky. And that is what they're doing to Jesus. That is what they're going to do. The ends justify the means. They don't care how they do it. They don't care what they have to bend or the rules they have to break. Evil must destroy the truth because they can't stand the truth in their midst. And so therefore they're willing to pull out all the stops and do anything that is necessary whatsoever. And once once again, the grammar is always important in these things. This is a participle. And hopefully you begin to understand what a participle is in the Greek language. It is not something that happens once. It is something that happens over and over and over again. In other words, from this point on, from the crescendo that is going to culminate in the cross, this happens almost every day, almost every time. They're not waiting for Jesus to say something to trip him up. They are actively trying to lay ambushes for him cloaking it in friendship. Hey, Jesus, come on over to our house and have lunch with us. While you're there, I'm going to weaponize some questions and put you on the spot. That's what they're going to do from this point on. And the final one is that they want to catch him in something that he might say. Once again, returning to the importance of the words. They want to catch him. Now, that's another word that needs definition because catch can mean a variety of things. Both of our girls played softball, and I remember many times we'd go out in the front yard and we would have a catch, all right, because we'd throw the ball around. That's not the kind of catch that this that this means. In fact, this is a word that means to hunt. It means to hunt maliciously, as if you would hunt down a wild animal that was hurting your crop or hurting your, your, your flock. Uh, David uses it to talk about how evil, he wished evil would, would hunt down people, let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. It is a word that means that, 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 that there, it's an aggressive word that the people are going to actually physically hunt Jesus down until they can do away with him. Ironic, I think it is. Because Jesus sort of came as a hunter, didn't he? He came from heaven to earth to hunt out evil and destroy it. He came from heaven to earth to hunt his elect, to hunt his bride, and to bring her back and introduce her to his father. And now the hunter becomes the hunted as they hunt him actively, looking for any possibility, any way that they can trip him up, that can cause him in his words to condemn him. And and, and once again, they're willing to put up with the words. Darkness hates light. Truth is something that falsehood cannot stand. And they're willing to undergo that just so they can justify what they're already planning, the stratagems that they already have. Now, to kind of summarize these four strategies, first of all, When Jesus leaves this, he's leaving people who hold a grudge against him, a strong grudge, a hateful grudge, a terrible grudge, a vicious grudge, a hostile grudge, a vehement grudge with a desire and the belief that the only way that that grudge can be rectified is by destroying the one who brought the the truth and shown it upon them. Secondly, they have weaponized questions and they barrage him with these questions designed not to learn the truth, not to reveal the truth, but to subvert, confuse, and battle the truth. Thirdly, they are laying nefarious ambushes, ambushes that are cloaked with goodness and niceness and goodwill, but actually in reality, It is malevolence and ill will that they intend. And finally, they're hunting Jesus. They're hunting him as if he was a criminal or a wild animal because they want to destroy him. This is what happens from this point on. Luke's gospel from the ninth chapter, the 51st verse, until the crucifixion, the cross looms large. And we need to recognize that that's where Luke is going here. But we need to recognize something else. 
we need to recognize that these kinds of stratagems, and these are not the only stratagems, these are just the ones that Luke has listed here, that these kinds of stratagems are still the things that Satan is doing today. He hadn't learned any new tricks. He doesn't need to. The old ones are so effective. So I want to talk about, just for a few minutes, of some of the ways that these stratagems are being used against Christians and against the church even now. Have you ever wondered, looked around you at the world and the way the culture reacts to things, why they seem to be so tolerant of everyone else except Christians? Have you ever wondered why they will give religions like Islam, which are probably the most politically incorrect religion on the face of the planet, while they'll give that a pass? But yet they will blame everything on the Christians and they will not give Christians anything. Well, I, I can give you two reasons for that that come out of this stratagem, the reason for it. Number one, brothers and sisters, the truth hurts. When you share the truth, when you stand for the truth, and you bring that truth into the darkness, the darkness hates it. The one thing that the darkness cannot stand is the light. And so when you're a proponent of the truth, when you stand for it, when you teach it, preach it, or even go to a church that, that stands for it, well, the, you're, you're going to find that the, you have enemies as, as a result of that. In fact, even, even to a degree... Even Christians, we, we don't necessarily like the truth. Sometimes we take a look at ourselves, the mirror of Scripture, and we're actually going to look at it a little bit later on. When we look at the mirror of Scripture, sometimes we don't like what we see. We don't like the truth. We'd rather live in our, our sort of manufactured world. But what happens to the world out there, the world in darkness, the world that hates Christianity? What happens when you begin to share the truth? When an evangelist goes out and says your righteousness is not enough to get you into heaven, that God is holy, and that if you stand before a holy God, you don't have a chance. Or an expositor like Freddie did last week talks about the wrath of God against our sinfulness. And that in, in his holiness, he must punish that sin. He must condemn it. He must judge it. Well, guess what? You're not going to make friends among those who enjoy their sinfulness. So therefore, the truth hurts. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they um, stand against us. And, 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 and the culture is so angry about the, tr- about the truth. And brothers and sisters, to the degree that the culture has entered the church is the degree to which the church hates the truth. And the degree to which the culture has entered you as a Christian, is the degree to which your flesh will fight against the truth. We have to make a decision here, brothers and sisters. The church has to make a decision. Either we are going to stand for the truth or we are going to cave into the culture. There is no middle ground. James wrote to a congregation very similar to us when he said, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, the love of the Father is not... I'm sorry. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I jump down to what John said in his first epistle. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. You might as well say it's satanic. Because it is not from God. There's only one other place that it comes from. And so therefore, one of the reasons that, that, the, the, that the world hates us is because of the truth. The other one is because they hold a 2,000-year-old grudge. <laughs> it didn't go away, folks. It started with Jesus. And it has not ended right up until today. 2,000 years worth of bitterness has built up against the Christian church. No wonder we have such trouble. No wonder the culture cannot stand us. No wonder they stand against us. And so therefore, it is um, uh, uh, the, the same kind of grudge match that Jesus described and the, um, or that Luke described and that they waged against Jesus. The second thing that we talked about was weaponized questions. And we talked about the fact that they asked Jesus a weaponized question. You remember when he was at the Pharisee's house? The Pharisee, well, he didn't ask a question, but it would have gone something like this. How come you don't wash your hands the way the rest of us do? 
How come you don't follow our traditions? How come you don't comply with the culture? Everybody else is doing this. This is the, our standard. These are our ethics. And, and, and you're not doing them. How come you don't comply with the dictates of the culture? And of course, Jesus wasn't interested in the complying to the dictates of the culture. And he knew that that was a weaponized question. Oh, brother and sisters, the devil still uses weaponized questions. In fact, the church is being torn apart right now by one. And, and, and I mean literally torn apart. It's a question taken out of context. It's a question that appeals to biblical understanding but doesn't accept anything that it says. And the question goes something like this. How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you say you're tolerant? How can you say you're compassionate? How come you, how can you say that you share the love of Christ and yet you do not allow homosexuals to have office in your church? How can you say that you are truly a follower of Jesus who was tolerant and loving and taught to unity and yet what you say is that you condemn same-sex marriages? How can you be so immoral? Anybody out there want to be accused of being immoral? Any of you want to be considered to be an immoral person? And so therefore, it is a question that strikes at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. You're asking, you're you're accusing me of not being Christ-like. Well, if you don't know your scripture, and you're not aware of what Christ-like means, well, then you're going to start caving to the scripture. Guess what? This is not even a question that we should have within the church. There is no question about this. The Bible is absolutely positively clear about what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is so important to God that he gave us the perfect example before the fall. And marriage is between one man, one biological male with all of his chromosomes and body parts in place and one woman a female with her chromosomes and body parts in place for life. That's what marriage is. One man, one woman for life. We don't have to have this discussion. And yet I look around and I see the church has fallen like dominoes. Falling all over each other to try and and, 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 and uh, 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 comply with the culture. They're afraid that if they don't, we'll lose our relevance. You see, these are questions that are weaponized. They're designed to cut, to, to, to subvert the truth and not reveal it. And those aren't the only questions. That just happens to be the question that's tearing the church apart right now. I mean, you've all heard them. How can you believe in a creation when the scientists tell us that the world is millions of years old and you say that it's a young earth? How can you believe that? How can you ignore everything? How can you believe that a million and a half people walk through the Red Sea on dry land? How can you believe in a God who would say to his people, go into Canaan and capture it and kill every man, woman, and child that is there? How can you believe in a God who would send people to hell, choosing some, not choosing others? How can you believe in those things? And that strikes at the heart of Christians. And they say, wait a minute, maybe I don't believe that because I want to be relevant and I don't want to be accused of being immoral to the culture. But none of those questions are actually bounded, bound in the context of Scripture. They are weaponized questions designed to subvert the truth. Thirdly, we learn about the nefarious ambushes. <laughs> you know, when, when you talk about a nefarious ambush, when we talk about the ambush in the way that this passage talks about it, it is an ambush that looks good on the outside. It's like that Roman, like, like I'm sorry, that Trojan horse. It looks good on the outside. Satan, we learn, cloaks himself a, a, as an angel of light, you know? He doesn't walk around with horns and a pitchfork looking at, 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 in his e- evil sense. No, he smiles and it looks so inviting and, and, and so actually natural to our fallen selves. And yet underneath it, there is a horrible, horrible ambush. Jesus told us about this. He told us that one of the greatest challenges that we will face as a church will not come from the culture 
Oh, the culture will attack us and continually to attack us. But one of the one of the greatest evils that we will face will not come from outside the church. They'll come from inside the church. Exactly like that Trojan horse. Jezebel sneaks in the back door. Balaam comes right in the back door and begins teaching things. Jesus says, be careful, beware. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. He goes on and says this. He says, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. How does he do this? What does it look like? What does it look like when these nefarious ambushes are carried out on the church? It's not against you with the armor on. It's against the weak, against the young. It's against those children that we're trying to raise up in the church and teach them about the the truths of Scripture. And, And then these false prophets just come in and grab them and just suck them right out from under us. I've seen it happen way too many times in my career as a pastor. Where young Christians, uh, they, they, they've got a smattering of the truth and then all of a sudden this, they get involved with somebody who just simply subverts the truth because they've ambushed them. They didn't see it coming. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about, um, about Jezebel in the back door. You know what is said of Satan? It said, just like the, the army, the Greek army that tried to attack the walls of Troy and just beat their heads against it, it said that Satan will first bring a hurricane against your rock of faith. And he'll try to blow you down or blow it away or destroy you. But if he can't, if that doesn't work, he'll send a gentle spring rain. One that you're not going to be noticing. But over the years, it will erode that rock. If you're not aware of what he does or the way that he does it, you will see an erosion of your faith and not even know that it actually happened. That's why Jesus tells us to be careful, to be careful of those who hunt in packs. And that's the fourth one that I want to bring to your attention. Brothers and sisters, if you stand for the truth, if you exposit the truth, if you evangelize the truth, if you believe the truth, then you will be hunted. And you say to me, Pastor Kirby, you're being paranoid. I mean, come on. <laughs> we don't live in that kind of world. People, you know, people aren't hunting us. Not only are you paranoid, you're trying to share your paranoia with other people. Well, I don't agree with that because I'm just following what Scripture says and 2,000 years of church history. Folks, it, it wasn't those who complied to the culture who got burned at the stake. It wasn't those who were willing to bend the knee to Nero and call him Lord that ended up in the Colosseums. It was the ones who stood for the truth. All throughout the history of the church, the people who have been martyred by the church have been those who have stood for the truth in the face of falsehood. If you stand for the truth, brothers and sisters, you will be hunted. You will show up as a blip on Satan's radar. If you water down the truth, if you deny it, if you put it under a basket, you're having no bother to him. He's going to leave you alone. But if you stand for the truth, he's going to attack you. And guess what? He doesn't play fair. He will attack attack you in your health. He will attack you in your finances. He will attack you in your relationships. He will attack you in your possessions. And worst of all, He will attack you through your family. He will attack your loved ones. And He will do whatever He can in any way that He can. He will hunt you down to try and destroy your witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let Him do it. Because Jesus says that in the world you face a great enemy, but greater is He that is in you than he who is in the world. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, brothers and sisters. I have overcome the world. And I believe that no matter how this tribulation might attack you, it is not going to overcome you. Because you are the Lord's. And he doesn't lose any one of his people. So brothers and sisters, the whole reason that I wanted to spend time on this 
is just to bring it into this current setting so that you recognize that this church, if you're a member of this church, welcome, Ellen. <laughs> if you're a member of this church, because we stand up for the, for the truth, you are putting yourself out as a target to be hunted and be recognized that. And therefore, there is something that Luke started this entire, con- this co- entire conversation on that is absolutely essential. And that is your sanctification. You need the armor of God. You can't face this enemy alone. And that's what sanctification is, to strengthen you, to discipline you, to make you obedient and battle ready to face the stratagems designed to destroy or subvert the truth. So therefore, the armor of God, the sanctification, the means of grace, all of these are of great significance. And speaking of the means of grace, this is one of them before us right here, this sacrament. And I told you that maybe unexpectedly, this passage refers or relates to this sacrament. So very quickly, I just want to give you two ways that I recognize that it does. We are told that through this, we are seeing the, that evil is marching out to destroy the, the truth of Jesus. They are laying traps for him. They are hitting him with attacking him with questions. They are hunting him down. They are holding a grudge. They are using all of these things with a singular purpose in mind. They want to destroy him and through him destroy the truth. And yet Peter told us in the book of Acts that this was all according to the foreknowledge and purpose of God. It is a perfect example, not only of God's sovereignty, but human responsibility. Because these people who led Jesus to the cross, they're paving the road right now. That's what these stratagems do. And so when we take this supper When we take these sacraments, rightfully so, one of the things that we think about is the crucifixion, the body that was sacrificed for us, the blood that was spilled for us, the atonement that Jesus accomplished there. But don't forget something. Don't forget that atonement and forgiveness is not the only thing that Jesus won for you. He won righteousness for you. And that righteousness came at a cost, brothers and sisters. It didn't come easy. In other words, we go back to the fourth chapter of Luke and we see Jesus in the desert and the devil comes and tempts him. Now, that's not the only time that he tempted him. The three that are listed, he tempted him until there was nothing else that he could tempt him with. In fact, we read in Luke, the devil, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And don't think that opportune time is just the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't think that it is just the cross. That enemy of Christ deluged him, besieged him with these stratagems throughout the entire time of his history. So when you take this and you think about the one who sacrificed himself for you, think about a life that day in and day out was lived in perfect righteousness so that you could stand before God with his righteousness because even though you're forgiven, without the righteousness of Christ, you would not stand in the presence of a holy God. Amen. You need that righteousness. And the second reason that I bring um, think that this particular passage has to do with our um, sacrament that we're about to take is because... It brings out the evil nature of those who are opposing Jesus. The fact that they were the human agents of evil and that they had a desire from the very beginning to destroy Jesus. In fact, these people were evil. They were wicked. They were sinful. They were fallen. They were condemned men and women. Paul says of them, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, of course, Paul's talking about pagans as well. But those inside the church who are the agents of evil is the same adjectives apply. They were 
religious heretics, apostates and hypocrites. They are transgressors against God's will. They are at enemy with Him and perfectly and completely deserving of the eternal punishment that awaits them. These are the ones who use these stratagems against Jesus. And it is people just like them that I am about to enjoy this sacrament with. You see, all those adjectives may not apply to you, but not a single one of you would be taking this sacrament if it wasn't for the grace of God. Because these are the men who paved the pathway to the cross. You are the one who nailed Him there. It was your sins and my sins. It was your transgressions that would separate you from God and make it impossible for you to stand before God. Those are what Jesus gave His life for. When we take these elements, the body and the blood of Christ were given for the likes of us. And we just described us. Not a one of us deserves to stand in the presence of God. The reason we take this great sacrament is because Jesus has extended to us the mercy and the grace of God the Father so that we can remember Him with love and compassion and recognize that only through Him are we saved. I leave you with the words of Paul. Once again, I read them earlier, but I want to read them in their context from the 8th chapter of Romans. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You are saved by grace. And that grace is something that no one ever can take away from you. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, the sword? Can anything that ever existed separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus, it's impossible. Paul goes on to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we take this. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. I dear Lord, we are so grateful to you. When we consider your life, perfect life of righteousness, when we consider the sacrifice that you made for us on a cross when we consider how much you love us how you loved us before the foundations of the world when you wrote our names in the book of life when none of us deserve it all of those adjectives that we read earlier that Paul talks about the fallen world all of them apply to us in one way or another and yet you loved us even when we were in that state and brought us to yourself we give you the glory dear Lord we don't deserve any of it there's not a person in here that deserves to take this supper there's not a single person that deserves your mercy your grace or your love and therefore we have a hard time understanding it we have a hard time grasping it but I pray that your spirit would be here in a very special way as we now take these elements that you would be glorified in Christ's name we pray Amen